Welcome to episode two of the Charity Leaders Podcast. I'm James Adam, co-founder of 33%, and this show is all about sharing stories, learning, and advice from some of the UK's most influential charity leaders. And this week, I've got the absolute pleasure of chatting to Deborah Alcock-Tyler. She's the CEO of the Directory of Social Change, which is a charity that exists to help other charities thrive. Deborah's got over 30 years experience in the sector and a mountain of advice and guidance to share. I know you're going to get a huge amount from this episode. We're going to talk about the role of a leader in a charity, sales and marketing, and her top three tips, which are absolutely fantastic advice for literally any business leader. So without further ado, here's my chat with Deborah. Deborah, thanks so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. I've been doing a lot of looking into your organisation, the Directory of Social Change, and I'm really, really excited to talk to you a lot more about this subject because, obviously, as as we've said before, we we're dealing a lot with the the business of running a charity and how charities market themselves. And you know, and I must say, you guys, you market yourselves really, really, really well. You've a really good understanding of who your audience is and everything that we always go on about. And so, yeah, again, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to our our conversation today. But first of all. Tell me a little bit about how you became a charity leader. Um, you know, honestly, like most people who end up in the charitable sector entirely by accident, I don't think I've ever met anybody who, like at school or college or university, said, oh, I want to go and run a charity. You just sort of end up in it by accident. I actually it started out um, working in the private sector in, in the city, actually, in a, in a bank which doesn't exist anymore. And then I... I left there actually because of sexual harassment, which is another story and another podcast and another episode. But I and so I ended up applying for a job at an organisation called the Industrial Society, which was itself a registered charity. And the Industrial Society had a, a campaigning mission, which was to make the world of work better for human beings. So we, you know, we used to go into companies and help leaders to be better leaders. We used to introduce the idea of, of unionization. We used to talk about briefings and communication and anyway, all that sort of thing. And so I, so, but, but it had a very charity feel. So even though most of the organizations that we worked with were private sector companies, businesses, although we did obviously work in local government and central government and charities as well, there was a charities division. At its core, we were a charity ourselves campaigning to make the world a better place. And I kind of got the bug of wanting to help make life better really. Um, and also I come from a, a background where, you know, voluntary activity and public service is kind of, you know, in our DNA. And so anyway, wor worked there for about 14 years or so and then uh, took redundancy, set up my own small company with a mate, hated that, like, you know, hated the fact that I was working for myself that, you know, we were earning money for our own sales that just didn't appeal. And then, you know, long story short, ended up at the, the Industrial Society, not the Industrial Society, Directory of Social Change, where I am now, applied to be applied to be Chief Executive. And because the, interestingly, Directory of Social Change has a very similar model to the Industrial Society, which doesn't exist anymore. And so the Industrial Society did most of its work through training, conferences, in-house publications, information sheets, magazines, etc. And Directory of Social Change, DSC, as we call it, basically has the same sort of model only on a much smaller scale so I think that's why they gave me the job because you know I already knew how to run a publishing business and a training business and you know yeah so that's how I ended up here at the at DSC planned to stay for probably five years and 20 years later here I still am well it must be uh, yeah it must be a good place to work if it's uh, it's kept you there for that long oh I love it I love that I'm a I'm not sure I love being a chief executive. <laughs> Again, that's another whole story because, you know, but I absolutely love the work of the organisation. It's, you know, I, honestly, I really, really, really care about what we do so much. But I didn't always like it. You know, when I first came, 
it was awful. I had anonymous hate mail. Somebody hated me so much that they actually cut out, cut out letter like wow. letters from magazines and newspapers and stuck them onto. Wow, I didn't think people really did that unless they were kidnapping a cat in a movie. That's uh... Uh, no, I honestly, they absolutely didn't, and, and it wow. was a, like a relentless campaign for about eighteen months of this anonymous hate mail. Anyway, in the end, uh, we found out who was sending it and put a stop to it. But yeah, so it wasn't always joyful. That's not, James, all, so. not all sunshine and rainbows. So tell me a bit about being. You know, you touched there on being a charity leader, but you know, being that that CEO position when you came into first doing that. How does that differ yeah. from kind of the day to day? working in the, you know, not, I'm not saying in the trenches, but doing the day-to-day tactical work to, to overseeing the whole thing? Yeah, it, you know, it's one of those things that you, it's really difficult to explain when you haven't experienced it. It's like the, the, it's not so much about the volume of work. And in fact, if you as a chief executive are spending hours and hours and hours dealing with paperwork, you're not doing the leadership job, which is what you're actually there to do. And in fact, I wrote one of the books, I'm sure you've seen that I wrote was It's Tough at the Top, which was aimed at charity chief executives, just to make this point there. It's the, it's the weirdest job. It's like the, the 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 exhaustion comes from the weight of responsibility rather than the volume of work involved, you know. And I think actually lots of us as chief executives, certainly a mistake I made when I first came in, is we, we think that we don't realise that most of our work is actually about having conversations with people. So it's, you know, you end up in the very first time, you, you end up writing loads of papers yourself and, you know, doing all that kind of thing until you suddenly realise, shit, this is not what I should be doing. My job is actually to be helping other people to write those papers and engage like that. So it's kind of weird like that. It's also gobsmackingly, breathtakingly lonely because it's the only job where you're the only one. Because your board of trustees, they belong to a team effectively, which is the board of trustees. Your your staff team belong to a team. Your your you know if you're lucky enough to have a you know big enough to have like a leadership team, your leadership team belong to each other, and then you're just this one solitary person in between all those things. And that can be that can feel absolutely overwhelming because you can't, even though you want to be authentic, there are things that you just can't say. You can't, for example, slag off your board to your senior team or vice versa because that's not being authentic to be leadership and stuff like that. So it is. Yeah, it's it's something that every single leader I know who takes on the role of being a chief executive gets a shock, you know, because you always thought you could do it. And if you'll forgive my language, one of my colleagues who um, was acting in absence for me as chief executive, because we do this thing at DSC where everybody has to act in absence for their manager or their chief executive so that people are learning, you know, and also plus they get to put it on their CV, I would act in chief executive. Um, when I'd come back and we were doing the debrief about how it had gone and how he'd experienced the being acting chief executive, <laughs> and he said to me, he said, you know what, boss? He said, the one thing I've realised is that by the time the shit gets to the top, it's really, really stinky. Yeah. <laughs> and of course it's so true, because if the problems can be dealt with, you know, at different parts, at different levels in the organisations, they are. So by the time they trickle up to you at the very top, they're sort of, they're really difficult. They're like mm. complete breakdowns in relationships or massive problems with suppliers or huge IT issues, you know. But anyway, so yeah, having said that, though, it's also, it can be absolutely joyous too. You know, it's not all bad. Yeah, I think that's something a lot of people, whether it's a you know charity or indeed small business or anything, people don't always yeah. realise how lonely it is running a business yeah. when you're when you are at yeah. the top. The buck stops with you, and you often yeah. even if you have got you sometimes you have got a board, you've got people above you, so you you've got you've got it coming from both directions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that can be yeah, and you you forget I think how much value there is in your conversations how much your time when you spend time with other people how much they value that and how much impact you can have way more than just you know writing lots of papers yeah. and doing lots of other stuff that conversation can really change people's lives and make a big difference 
Well, that's what the job is, basically, James. I mean, I always, you know, not just at Chief Exec level, even at any sort of senior leadership level is, you know, people who complain about the meetings, I'm like, but the meetings are the work. You know, people say, I'm in too far too many meetings, I can't get any work done. I'm like, when you get to our level, the meetings are the work, because that's where you influence and you listen and you strategize and you problem solve. And all of that happens in a conversation with other human beings. And I would say that if you're not spending at least 70% of your working week as a chief executive or senior leader talking or listening to people, you're probably not doing the job right. Mm, that's a really, really, really good point. So tell me a bit about the Directory of Social Change. What makes it special? Well, so DSC was set up about 45 years ago by a chap called Michael Norton, who had this idea about uh, publishing this book, which was called The Directory of Social Change. And that's how we ended up with the name, which was basically a source of information to people in the voluntary sector, but also to the wider world about the work of the voluntary sector. And uh, there were sections in it on fundraising and things like that. And, and what happened was, is people got very interested. So people were getting in touch with him and saying like, oh, can you come and talk to us? Or can you come and train us in or what have you? And so it sort of grew from there, really. It wasn't, it wasn't like a ready formed idea sort of set up. It kind of morphed and emerged and evolved. And actually, I would say to this day, one of the, the real strengths that we've kept at DSC is this fact that we are, we're incredibly responsive to our environment. You know, we, we, we sort of, we really quickly adapt and flex to what's going on in the world around us, which is one of the reasons why I think that we've survived, you know, 45 years, despite the fact that competition has become, you know, increasing. I mean, when I started at DSC 20 years ago, we, we didn't really have much competition, if I'm honest, you know, we were the biggest provider of training and publications and information generally to the sector. And then, um, and there were other organizations like NCVO, National Council of Voluntary Organizations, who were the membership body, who also did bits of that, but not at the scale that we do um, that we do at DSC and then what's happened is over time the you know others having started to engage in that same kind of work less the publishing side to be fair but like conferences information sharing that sort of thing and so in what is effectively a very static market which we're, we can get to talk about later when we talk more about marketing but in a very static marketplace all of a sudden it was flooded with people doing the same sort of work that we were doing so I've completely lost my thread <laughs> we've got onto that question but anyway yeah so DSC so but at DSC's core so we believe that the world is made better when individuals get off their backsides and support each other their communities their neighbors fellow people in the world and we think that one of the most effective vehicles to enable that giving and support to happen is around charities so we sort of think like charities are like the bonfire that gather that people gather around and, um, and so for us at DSC, we believe that if, if charities run themselves well, if they raise the money, if they deal with their cause, if they attract volunteers, overall, the world will get better. So for us, charitable endeavour is not just about the cause. Of course, causes matter, you know, if you're dealing with cancer or, or mm. kids or camels or whatever that ha happens to be. But actually, it's about the, it's the much bigger macro impacts that charities themselves have on society as a whole. So that's kind of the core of our being. So everything we do is about helping charities to do what they do really well so that the world is a better place. And we're very connected as an organisation to that ultimate feeling. So like if you talk to any of my staff or our trustees about DSC, they will talk about the end product. So it's not about the services we provide. They, you know, it's not about the training or the books, or the research yeah. or the funding information. It's about the fact that, you know, somebody, some child out there has a wheelchair that they wouldn't otherwise have access to, or some, you know, bereaved parent has access to counseling that they wouldn't otherwise get, and that overall the world is becoming better, which all sounds a bit, you know, I don't know, 
motherhood and apple pie, but we genuinely, genuinely believe it. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a, an amazing sense. I, I wrote down literally that from your one of your um, talks. You said that the world changes for the better by the actions of individuals, because I, I re- that really resonated with me when I heard it, because it is yeah. a lot of the people we've spoken to on this this podcast series has been about their individual charity and their the individual outcomes of their charity and the people that they're helping them you know amazing things that they're all doing but it's interesting to talk to you to, to think of this as a a much wider goal like the actual improvement that if every one of those charities does well then they help individual people but not only the people they help but just generally that by supporting a charity even that you don't get any help from you are better for having supported that charity so everybody Absolutely. is lifted up from it which is i think really amazing yeah, and it's and it's it, it reminds me of with the charity commission a few years ago now wanted to introduce this um, thing called the Gateway Program. So they were basically because there was this whole sort of you know thing going around about there's too many charities, which is ridiculous. There aren't, but anyway, it's the most natural natural market there is in the world in the voluntary sector. It's it's it's, it's less regulated almost in some ways than the rest. Again, we can touch on that later, but. Um, but and it's sort of saying like, well, if a charity already exists for dealing with childhood cancer, why don't you just donate to a charity rather than setting up a charity in your own in your daughter's name or your child's name or whatever? And of course, that is to completely miss the entire point because if all you do is donate to another charity, that's remote. You're not personally really engaged in that. Whereas if you set up your own organisation, what you do is you nobble your neighbours, your mates, you bang on the doors of the local authority and councillors, and all of a sudden, a whole load of human beings who otherwise would not be thinking about doing good in the world or thinking about volunteering or thinking about helping others who are suffering has suddenly sat in and so actually I would always say set up a charity why not because if you're going to suck people in into thinking that there's more to life than their own selfish little you know whatever <laughs> things do you know what I mean yeah, James no, so we've always said there are not too many charities if anything there's not enough you know, because there are pockets of the country with massive areas of deprivation where there simply aren't enough charities to provide the services that would really support people. So, you know, definitely not too many charities. Yeah, no, it's as you say, it's, it's that it's that connection and they can it's the, they are the sort of connective tissue between people. As you say, you wouldn't, you know, I might support a charity because it resonates with me. But if I create a charity, then my friends will support it because it's about, you know, because they Absolutely. relate to me and that's the story. And it's, and you know, we, we will come yeah. on to marketing in a bit, but it, it's all about those stories that there is to tell. And that's yeah. what, that's what connects people to things. And so, yeah, I, I totally, totally agree. So tell me a bit about the last year. Obviously we've had a little bit going on over the course of the last 18 months with this, uh, this COVID yeah. business. Uh, it's changed a lot of businesses. It's changed. It's you know, created a lot of challenges for a lot of charities, especially in you know, the fundraising side of things. Tell me how the last, the uh, last little while, has been for you guys well I mean first off for us it's been really heartbreaking because it's the it's those charities that we serve that have been in trouble so we've spent such a lot of time doing our absolute best to try and find ways to support them you know personally on the phone you know lots of charity chief execs you know be saying oh you know don't give up we'll get through it you know that sort of thing as well as having to dramatically completely turn around what we were doing the interesting thing for us actually was that what the pandemic did do is it enabled us to, to make the changes that we'd wanted to change for ages, but all sorts of things were getting in the way, like systems and processes and, you know, the world wasn't ready. So, for example, we've been trying to promote um, online training for years, years and years and years, we invested in this thing, you know, people just aren't, aren't interested in it, they just weren't buying it. Now, of course, that people had no choice because we couldn't go into rooms together. So we very quickly set up this, this pro- programme of online training, which took off through the roof. It was like the most successful training program we've ever run probably in you know 40 or 45 odd years of DSC so 
you know, so uh, the, so there's the obvious like real worries for us, for those that we're serving who really are struggling. Of course, DSE, you know, we sit on various coalitions and collaborations of other major charities trying to persuade government to do things differently and et cetera. So there's that side. But for DSC itself, I mean, what I will say is we have very, very, very good habits. So we have extremely good practices within the organisation. And because we already had those, it meant that we didn't really have to do anything significantly different because we already had amazing practices. So, for example, we have a monthly briefing every single month at the same time, on the same day, where the managers will tell our staff the truth about what's going on. We have the habit of telling the truth. We have, you know, the way in which we do one-to-ones and appraisals and, and that sort of thing. So we had a management management accounting, for example, forecasting. So for, for, for 20 years, we've had really, really good solid practices, which stood us in good stead. So, I, you know, I'd be saying to leaders out there, get your practices right your systems and your processes will help you you know it's like one of my colleagues said that what we've done it's almost like we've been practicing for a marathon for 20 years and then all of a sudden we were in the race but because we'd like prepped ourselves and we had the good you know nutrition and whatever it is you need to run a marathon I don't run marathons but anyway <laughs> we were actually raring to go so from that perspective we ended up quite well I mean we, we started off in the pandemic we'd not had a particularly good 2019 and when our income literally like everybody else has dropped off a cliff overnight I was really worried I thought God, six to eight weeks maybe if I'm lucky you know I can keep us going in terms of paying salaries and what have you but actually because we had good systems and processes and a really good board by the way who are well trained and really effective we were able to take decisions really fast and so we could very quickly furlough we very quickly took advantage of you know the low the government loans that are out there coronavirus business support scheme I think no uh, in investment loan or whatever it's called I can't yes. remember oh, yeah, yeah. yeah you know that so we very quickly took advantage of things like that we also unusually organizations like DSC don't typically attract funding or donations um, because of the nature of the work we do like people funders like to fund frontline causes yeah. completely understandably but on this particular occasion because we were all in crisis we actually got access to funding that we otherwise would never have got so we in fact ended up with more money coming in than we it very very quickly within like a matter of months we've managed to completely shore up our finances and put ourselves in quite a strong position so we've done okay actually I mean we furloughed our staff for about well we furloughed them very quickly so that within within days of, of the announcement being made that that scheme was available and we furloughed everybody until July but in those three months we had the skeleton crew like pulling things around and we managed to sort ourselves out so we could bring all our staff back and we had we had said that 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 was our commitment. And then also things like, you know, with our furloughed staff, we met with them every week. So we set up a Zoom and we said it's not compulsory because it's not work. Yep. But we just don't want to think that just because you're not here, we don't care about you. And we, we just kept them informed about everything that was happening. We told them any income that was coming in. If we had any bad news, we tell them about that. And so the whole way through furlough, even those furloughed staff who were furloughed in the end for about three months, I think, knew what was going on and didn't feel you know and then when we came back you know we all had to celebrate them because because you know it was hard work being you know on the skeleton crew mm. as we called it but actually much harder for those people who had no control over what was going on who just had to sit at home and hope that the road those of us there were 13 of us those of us left were actually going to save their jobs and make sure yeah. the thing you know looked over so it was like massive credit to them and because they did it with such good grace and such cheerfulness and such you know and willingness like what's lots of them went and volunteered for other organizations so that they could help out where they could we couldn't have done it if they hadn't have been so so 
I positively furloughed, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Anyway, again, I've forgotten the question. No, no, no. That's that's a great answer. And I think it's a really, really important point that you made that actually we've seen this with you know with other charities but also with with businesses as well that the ones that have that strategy in place the ones that understand where they're trying to get to they know what their mission is they know what they're trying to achieve when something like this comes along and it's unprecedented no one could have prepared for it but when it does happen it's much easier to realign to adjust to do something differently and and i've seen a huge number of people get things done that they never thought they were going to get done before things like you know we've seen restaurants that were never going to take online bookings or were never going to be able to do delivery suddenly they can because they cut because if they don't they're done yeah and i think that's you know we've seen that a lot with especially online you know online is the key i mean that is the key big change isn't it that lots of people who would said no online training is not for me i want to everything's got to be in person i need to go to a meeting i need to drive I mean, to travel the breadth of the country for an hour's meeting, yeah. this has forced change. And I think it's changed. That's changed yeah. forever now, hasn't it? I, yes, I do. I think so. Although there's so much that we lose from online. Mm. And I so, so, you know, I think that, you know, I, yeah. So, for example, if you think about online training. I mean, I would say, of course, I would. But I think our online training is excellent. Our trainers are excellent. Our content is really good. We get great feedback, you know, lots of repeat bookings and things like that. However, I think that the quality of the learning is less. Because what you what you cannot do on a video screen, no matter how skilled you are as a trainer or how committed you are as a learner, is you don't get that casual sort of what did she say? You know, that kind of did you you know, you don't get the tra- the trainer doesn't overhear conversations because you like you're on mute all the time. You have to put your hand up to speak. So so I, it's not all. Yeah, it's not all fantastic. All I would say is like, I think, you know, people have got very excited about this new online world. And I think it's really important to recognise that we lose a lot. And we've got to work to see how we can either compensate for what we lose or find a, a more sort of hybrid way of working. But actually, it was also because we've been talking at DSC, DSC for quite a few years about, you know, I had this idea that I really wanted us to have a four day working week. And I'd, I'd, I'd been reading around it. And, and the final trigger for me to talk to my trustees about it was I read R- Rutger Bregman's um, Utopia for Realists. I don't know if you've come across it, James. Very good. Anyway, uh, and he talks in, in his book about, you know, different sort of working patterns and things like that uh, but when I went to my trustees and to my senior team there, there was kind of reluctance there were all the reasons why it probably wouldn't work be really difficult to implement all the rest of it and my broader in theory like you know that's fine but you need to do a paper so it, you know so I was going to have to go away and do a paper and put research in it and you know and all the rest of it and uh, anyway and so that all just got delayed because I didn't have time to put bloody papers together and we were trying to you know 2019 was a really difficult year anyway but then come the pandemic I was able to just make it happen just like that overnight without having to faff about with papers you know we did it as an experiment and in fact in April this year just gone my board ratified that the permanent working terms and conditions for DSC staff is that they're 35 hours in four days so all of our staff have a three-day week and actually for us it wasn't about the four-day working week it was about a three-day weekend because we were all the studies that I'd looked at said that people need consecutive days off like a day here and a day a day is not good for your mental health you need you need wind down time a bit like with exercise you need to warm up and then do the exercise and then warm down I keep saying this. It's I, a, lot of, yeah, impression- a lot of exercise-based metaphors coming out. I know, yeah. I'm gonna, yes, I'm going to give the impression to listeners that I exercise. I really don't. <laughs> I've just picked this up from others around me. This is about a three-day weekend. It is not about you take off time, you know, times here and there. And so we've implemented something which very, very, very few people have implemented. And it's working incredibly well, you know. So, yeah. It talks a lot about the, the kind of 
commercial competition and i've seen a lot in the last year you know a huge number of people starting online courses stopping yeah. what they're doing and becoming trainers doing various different things so so the market for, of people coaching seems to have dramatically increased so tell me a bit about how yeah. you guys compete with more commercial organizations so it's going to sound weird but we don't really ever talk about competition we don't tend to think about the need to compete with others. I mean, obviously, we know who our competitors are and what they're up to. Mostly, we talk about what we can provide and what we can serve and how we can help. And because we've always had this view, which probably I, I know would shock a lot of people. And I'm sure there'd be loads of like, you know, people out there saying that's a ridiculous view to take. But actually, we've always had the view that, that the voluntary sector, all of us in there are serving charities to help them serve human beings. And provided those people are being served, it doesn't matter if it's us or somebody else. You know, DSCs never felt it had a God-given right to provide these services. If other people do it, it's fine. I mean, okay, it can be a bit irritating sometimes when somebody nicks your idea or what have you. But ultimately, if you step above it and recognise that we're all trying to get people to do things better so that somebody somewhere has a life that's saved or a life that's enhanced or a life that's supported, that's got to be okay. And I think that's what gives us a little bit of an edge at DSC because we focus very much on just making sure that what we do is right for the people that we're serving as far as we possibly can. And, you know, not jumping on fads and things like that, but trying really to focus on the core stuff so, so you'll notice for example our training programs we have a series of topical things that we run but the vast majority of, of the work that we do is really good solid grounded work on how to understand finance if you're a non-financial manager how to lead your team how to communicate effectively how to recruit volunteers how to you know develop your board and stuff like that which is everyday stuff that will always be needed it's not sort of yeah fashionable or in, in the wind of the moment so yeah, so so that's the and that's the only thing we can do because if we were to worry about the competitors all the time, I think we'd go mad. And also, actually, if I'm honest, James, the, the main competitors to us are people we can't compete with anyway. So they're like the one or two person bands. You know, they're the small independent yeah. consultants and coaches and, and trainers where you know they can charge a lot less than we have to because they're not carrying the overhead that we have to carry. You know, and things like that. So. We, you know, that, that's the bulk of the bulk of any business we lose would tend to go to the small, you know, independent trainers and contractors rather than the larger organizations, including in com commercial. And in terms of private sector competition, they never get it right, James, because they absolutely don't understand <laughs> the difference between charity and a business. And there are fundamental differences, you know, in structure and accountability and in motivation. You know, I mean. For example, you'll find private sector businesses will often come in and talk about the need to grow. And yet for lots of charities, growing is a sign of failure because it means you're not solving the problem or you're making, you know what I mean? Mm. It's like if you're a, homeless, you're a homeless shelter in Slough, you don't want to grow. Yeah, you're, yeah you're, the, means, the job of a charity yeah. is almost to create its own obsolescence. You want to absolutely. have no job anymore. That would be perfect, absolutely. wouldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So, so very often the private sector providers into our sector don't survive very long. Um, simply because they just don't understand the sector they don't understand the e economics of it it's a very very different economic model you mm. know and the accountabilities and, and the fact that, that you know they often don't understand for example like restricted funding you know that yes we do we do have five hundred thousand pounds in the bank but we can't touch it because we're only allowed to use it for that you know so because you can go out of business as a charity with you know half a million quid in the bank because that money is you can't use it for other things and that's that can be incredibly difficult for people to get their heads around so yeah we worry less about them yeah i think that's that's really interesting because definitely the the great charities that i've spoken to they all have that same view where they're not 
looking over the shoulders the whole time, worrying what everyone else is doing and thinking, oh, should I copy that or can I take that idea or worrying that there's someone nipping at their heels. They've got this, the goal is just do an amazing job of what you're doing. And I think that's, you know, that is a great piece of advice for any of that. And that is something I think that runs across commercial private sector or charity is just focus on doing a great job of what you're doing and don't worry too much about what everyone else is doing because you'll not go far wrong if you're doing a great providing a great service yeah I always think like you know when I first started out driving my brother Gary gave me some incredible advice I was a very nervous driver and he said because I used to spend my whole time looking in the rear view mirror and the wing mirrors and he said stop worrying about what the drivers behind you doing because I get really stressed like there's there's the whole row of traffic behind me you know and panicking and my brother always used to say like let them worry about themselves. You concentrate on the road ahead. The only time you need to worry about them is if you're going to overtake or, or make a manoeuvre. Then you need to just double check that it's safe to do so. Otherwise, focus on the front. And, you know, if they crash into you, that's their problem, not yours. And it's one of the best pieces of driving advice I've ever had. And I think it actually relates to running an organisation, as you say, you know, private sector as well. It's like, don't worry about the people behind you. Focus on where you're going and get that right. We, we talked before about you talked about trust us we've been talking and about you know honesty and authenticity how important is that I mean it sounds incredibly important in your organization but just tell me a bit about how how much of a core factor that plays well it's it's kind of to do with the arrogance of leaders or or professionally qualified people or people think they're good at stuff is that we we sort of position ourselves as if we're like leaders or teachers or parents of other people around that and I've always felt it's one of the reasons why I was a trade union activist when I was younger and you know I was a trade union officer for 40, 14 years in my organization it's because I'm an adult I have a right to know what's going on I dare you keep secrets from me so it came from my experience of feeling why are you excluding me from this information you know this whole information is parent never made any sense to me that I shouldn't know everything in my organization that everybody else knew including the chief execs and the directors i just like why wouldn't you tell us you know and it's and it's again it's the habit of holding on to you know power, information as power so i've always always had that view when i came to dsc i'm like i i work with adults you know i'm not better than any of you i just happen to have a different a different role you know and actually to be honest certainly in the early days i'm a bit more experienced now but they, half of them could have done it way better than i was doing <laughs> you know what i mean so so but well do you have a right to know it's your organization like the money that if things are going wrong i need to tell you those things so the rule we have at dsc is the only thing we don't talk about with people is things that are of personal nature as an as an al you know because obviously people have things going on in their private lives or if there are you know the occasional discipline or stuff where you would tend not to broadcast that partly because you're protecting individuals mm. but other than things like that they you know they know how much money we've got and how much we haven't got they know when we're worried about the cash they know when things are going okay they know when we're a bit cross about what's going on in the world oh, and we talk you know we meet every day but we talk about you know politics and racism and you know so it's a very very open environment and it's because they're adults like they're, they're and I, I've always found this you know really funny thing is about we, you know, we, people in their own lives make massive decisions about where to live and whether to buy a house or not, or whether to get married or whether to come out or whether to have kids or like hugely life, who to vote for, huge life-changing, incredibly important decisions. And they come into the workplace and we make them sign a, a chit for a pen out of the stationery cupboard. Uh, it's just madness. And so we're just like, we use adults, you know, you're adults, you, we deserve. And also, of course, what happens is we then don't get that kind of, um, dependent neediness it's like mm. you're like well what are you doing about it? we don't get that we get them coming and saying like have we tried this and let's give this a go so it's a much more adult relationship and then in terms of authenticity 
the thing about authenticity is, you know, because I have people say that I've got, I've got to bring my whole self to the workplace. You know, I like, I, I'm, I, I've got to be authentic, as if that just means I've got to dump all my. Do shit I want? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not what being authentic is about. And I would say it's a bit like if you think about being a parent. If you're feeling, if you're really, really fed up with your part, your life partner, and you're having massive problems in your relationships, you don't dump that on your five-year-old. You know, because that's being inauthentic to being a parent. You keep that separately because you're being authentic to being a parent, which is, you know, to not burden people with something they can't, you know, five-year-old kid is not going to process the information. And it's the same with leadership. You know, being authentic to leadership means that you always have to remember that every single thing that you do or say has an impact on other people around you. And if you're saying, I have to bring my whole self into the workplace completely unfiltered, that's not authentic. That's selfish. Mm and yeah. ignorant and damaging to other people so uh, so you know it's it's yes of course sometimes I'm not feeling great and I have to put on a little bit of an act with my team sometimes you know I'm in pain or I'm anxious or I'm worried about something but I know that if I carry all that into them in that way all the time that doesn't help me and it doesn't help them so anyway that's how I see it no I mean, I, yeah that's such a it's such an important distinction that I don't think everyone gets it's that that level of trust within an organization and sharing that it's, it's one of the biggest myths I think that leaders sometimes have is this idea that oh, I better not tell everyone that we're not doing very well because yeah. then they'll all get worried but like they know everyone knows they oh, know they already know. Like, yeah. Yeah. so all you're doing Again, is... we have a ma- yeah we have a mantra at DSC don't protect support you know if I catch my managers keeping things from their staff because they're you know they're protecting them or even not giving them jobs to do because they're protecting them I get really mad I'm like no give people the information give them the extra work and then support them to do it Hmm. yes yeah don't protect support would be absolutely one of the major lessons I would say that I've learned and that I would pass on but that honesty but then but then combined also with you know as you say the authenticity is about it's not an unfiltered it's not a complete unfiltered truth bombs left right and center just sharing every part of your life it is about being authentic to your to your role and what the 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 organization needs from your role and that's that's such an important thing to think about although in fairness i should confess that i'm a bit of an (laughs) oversharer tmi so i've had to bring slightly more of myself into the conversation than some of my team would like but you know (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure they appreciate that as well so we talk a lot about marketing charities and we, we, a lot of the people we've spoken to, sometimes when, I, when we bring up the discussion of marketing, people sort of cringe a little bit or they feel a bit uncomfortable shifting their chairs and they feel a bit icky because marketing doesn't always have the greatest reputation. And, and we often talk about this idea that if you don't, you know, ultimately, if, you're, if you believe what your organisation is doing is good and you don't tell anyone about it, really, you're letting down the people that you're trying to help. So by not marketing, you're doing way more damage than you are by doing any marketing so tell me a bit about you know obviously your organization is a lot of what you're doing is teaching other people to do great marketing as well so just but just tell me about your relationship with marketing from a you know from a very senior level well they would say I interfere (laughs) (laughs) but I you know I have to say because I'm passionate about it what you said James is absolutely true the point is I'm incredibly proud of what we're really good and we can help you but there's no way we can help people if they don't know that we can help them. I mean, I would say we still have a problem at DSC because we're a little, I think we're overly modest. I don't think we say nearly enough about how incredible we are because we've got that kind of natural diffidence that goes on, which, you know, I think we're embarrassed a little bit to say we're awesome. So we do suffer 
a little bit from that. But it's, you know, sales, marketing, however you want to describe the world. The, the thing is, if you've got something that you think is going to be valuable to people, why the hell wouldn't you shout about it? Why you wouldn't you share it if you know it's going to help others? So we very, I very much have that attitude towards the way in which, you know, we do things at, at DSC. And I, and I have very skilled team, I have to say, you know, who go around it. I mean, I, for me... Marketing is, is really about inviting people to participate in the story, basically. I mean, I always say, particularly with charities, but I guess it would be the same in the private sector, you need to appeal to the heart. You know, people don't buy data. They buy a story or the way you make them feel, you know. It's, it's also, because you know, I always say to my team, and, and they're pretty good at doing it, is don't market to job titles. A chief executive is a human being, just like a finance officer, just like, you know, there's, there's the um, volunteer lead, you know, market to human beings, because if you market to me as a chief executive, you're going to use language which is not going to appeal to me as a human being. And so I'm less likely to be engaged in your story versus if you, you know, think about me as a human being, what am I going to get out of it? So um, and I think that's what we try to do at DSC. Also, our marketing is very much driven by our values. And in fact, interestingly, we've actually updated our values in line with the work we did on our brand um, marketing. So we, we identified about, oh, I can't remember how many years ago now, six, seven years ago, maybe slightly longer, a brand, the brand that we wanted our brand value to be empathy because we wanted people who came to us to really feel like we understood, we get it. We're not putting ourselves above you. When we're teaching you something, we're not teaching you because we're superior. We're teaching you because like, yeah, we've been there. Yeah. Go on, let me tell you what it was like for me. So, so it's just like we're in this journey together as opposed to we're superior beings with more knowledge. And we've found that to be so powerful that we've actually then adopted that as our actual, as a core value of the entire organisation, which is, you know, empathy, excellence and empathy are two values. So, yeah, so it's very, yes. So it's very much about we're talking to human beings and trying to persuade them that we can help them because we can. You know, we're not selling something they don't need. That's such a good point about the brand as well. It's this idea that you don't people think that they've got this thing and then it's it, it's sort of written in stone and it's in a book or they you know they have their marketing strategy and they put it in a drawer, lock the drawer and don't look at it again until you know I don't know for ten years or whatever. But but it should be evolving. It should be ever changing. And as the world changes, which it does yeah. a lot all the time, you have to be able to yeah. evolve yeah. with it. And you have to be able to change. And you see those those things come in. I love the fact that you've taken those things and brought them and brought them in as core values. Yeah. It's, so so important well it's a bit like you know with, with our training brochures when we're marketing our training we used to do you know what people do which is all beautiful you know fabulous designer we have kate and but she would do fantastic designs and it all abstract but of course what we realized was that you know when you in fact i got this out of reading bill bryson's book when he was talking about I think it was notes from a small island it might have been or journeys or anyway whichever one it was and he was saying about he and his wife had gone into this shop and he'd seen his wife go and touch all the clothes you know like she was she, she couldn't just look at gum she had to pull it out she had to feel it and feel the material and he just made this very funny observation about that and it really struck me that we need to have that touching the garment feeling when we're trying to sell training but how do you do that because if you go into a shop you can actually physically touch the thing but when you're buying a training program you can't so what do you do and so what we did is we made sure we had loads and loads and loads of pictures of people actually participating in training so we were trying to generate that feel that this is what it looks like when you come on a dsc program and they're real people you know they're um people are on our courses or well they're, they're quite out of date <laughs> yes. now, James, obviously just a lot of people on zoom because we wanted to, we wanted to appeal to people's sense of that looks like fun 
or you know that looks like an experience I would value as opposed to here are the benefits and we still do all of that but here are the benefits and here's what you'll get out of it and all the rest of it and we realize very quickly that that's not pulling on people's like I really fan- I lo- like the look of that as opposed to you know what benefit am I going to get out of this purchase so yeah. some people's objection to marketing is is that it's not you know that they can't be ethical how do you be ethical and also kind of ultimately sell something what's your view on that can you be ethical and also market something you know reasonably aggressively to make sure you get to as many people as possible uh, no if you're selling <laughs> drugs or something clearly not but, you know that's not what, what we're in the business in the voluntary. marketing the voluntary sector should in theory be the easiest thing ever because you're selling you're selling somebody's life being saved or something being better or something changing or, you know, I mean, we, it can be challenging marketing, of course, in the sector, because the trouble is the things that work, people don't approve of. So, for example, you know, it absolutely works. If you show a picture of an abused child, you get more revenue coming in than if you show a picture of a happy child because of how, how people's psychology works. But people don't like you showing pictures of victims because, because of all the complexities around the messages and all the rest of it. So, it's a, it, so it is a real, real problem. Well, and it's the same, of course, in, um, well, actually, it's worse in, the, in, in our sector than it is in the private sector. Because in the private sector, you, I fully expect to get credit cards um, things through the the post because I know that and I've thrown nearly all of them away and then one day it's going to land in just as the boiler burst and I haven't got any cash and I'm going to apply for that credit card so that's why we do I mean I'm speaking <laughs> your experts I'm not but that's my understanding that's why we do direct marketing and that's why we do so much of it because you, you've got to do it at volume because there's a very if you only do it once a year the chance window. of it landing on the time that that person is in the right space for it absolutely and it's the same with it's the same with charity marketing people with the best in the world do not wake up in the morning and think right order of jobs go to the toilet have a shower brush my teeth donate to charity doesn't happen like that people only donate to charity because they are asked to that's the only reason they do it and also you yeah and yeah so it's a very different kind of model in some ways although of course there's still the whole asking thing and so it it can be difficult for us because when people moan about like you know all the marketing flyers for charities that you get through the door much less now because we don't do it like that but the reality is is that because it works and that's how people you have to remind people that you're there and I always say to people who get funny about it there's a kid out there starving and alone and you're going to keep that kid starving and alone if you're not prepared to go out and get money in or get funding in or get support in for your charity so stop being so wissy-wossy about it and think about the end goal somebody needs you to do this marketing so that they get help so don't be a drama queen about it get i on. love it yeah you're so right it's that's what we always say to people it's just you need to get out get get rid of that perception that marketing or sales or any of those things yeah. are a, are not a nice thing to do because if you believe that your product is great yeah. you don't have a problem doing it when you talk about recommending a restaurant to somebody you've got no problem marketing their restaurant yeah. by telling them about how amazing it is yeah so, Think of that way about your product. Yeah. And if your product or your service or, your, or whatever it is you're offering isn't good, if you aren't helping that many people, make it better. Make it so you do feel like that. Make yes. it so you can promote it in that way because then you, you know, when you believe in something like obviously like you do, it's easy peasy to tell people about how great it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's um. And the thing is, if you're embarrassed about your product, maybe you need to yeah. have a look at the product. Or if you're embarrassed about marketing, I mean, maybe you need to look at what it is you're marketing rather than the. I mean, we. But it, having said that, though, I'm being slightly dismissive because there is this whole sort of, um, you know, kind of narrative in the sector that we're so used to about the sort of Uriah Epis. We've got to be humble because asking for money, people think asking for money means we're we're failures, and you know, and there is still that around. You know, there are still, you know, there are people out there who don't understand about charities who think that it's a failure of our model. You know, they talk, for example, about 
they say like charities need to become more sustainable, which is a euphemism for sell stuff right. as opposed to ask for stuff. But actually, if you look at ever, I was proven right about this because I've always said this is nonsense. You know, actually selling stuff is not sustainable. Asking for money is, you know, because because that sort of model anyway. And I've been proved absolutely right, because if you look at what's happened in the in the last 18 months or so, organizations like charity retail shops that relied on selling stuff have really, really, really struggled because that revenue has plummeted, even though they've gone to online and stuff. So they've been creative. And also the fact that we can't go out and ask people for funding has made. No, it you're right. No, I, I, I totally get it. You, you do have to be willing to ask for, you know, you know, ask for that, ask for those donations. Yeah. So, right now, if you think about your marketing strategy, what what is the most important thing in your marketing strategy at the moment? Oh my God, James! Like I, I, I can't answer that question because I get it wrong, and my direct marketing <laughs> strategy. So yeah, like strategy, <laughs> strategy. Our strategy at the moment, I'm, I'm joking, our marketing strategy is not separate to our organisational strategy. Great. So our organisational, so our strategic priorities are to extend our reach, to develop our digital um, offering and to promote our expertise. So, that, so that's the, and all of that is the same thing that drives our marketing strategy. So we've done a lot of, a lot of work around our digital marketing, for example. We've done a lot of work around our social media marketing particularly because that helps us to develop regionally um, yeah, and to extend our reach generally. Um, so, yeah, so our, so everything that we do links into the core overall, overall organisational strategy. Now, I, I mean, we used to have separate strategies for things. Now we don't, but those, are, those three apply to our training business, our publications business, our funding information business, our research business. They are, they're the core drivers under, underlying all of those. In terms of the operational stuff, again, I don't have my, I don't know all the detail around that. I just think, yay, it seems to be working. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. It should, it, those two things should be joined together. The, the strategy for the business and how you're going to market it should should be absolutely connected. I, I you know, couldn't couldn't agree more. I mean, there's been a huge amount. You know, if you listen to this, I would encourage you to go. But I'm going to go back and listen to this several more times because there have been so many really really valuable tips in there along the way. But if you had to offer two or three tips, piece of advice to other charities that might be struggling, may have struggled over the course of the last year, what, what should they be doing? I would be saying, tell the truth. Tell the truth of your story to the world, to your staff, to your trustees, to your stakeholders. Tell the truth, you know, because, you know, that builds trust and relationship. When people feel that if they ask you a question, you're going to pretty much, they can pretty much guarantee you're going to say how it really is. That really, really builds trust. And that's that includes when you're marketing, you know, if you're trying to get donors or sponsors or, you know, whatever it is, it's like telling the truth. The second thing is like, don't think ever think in terms of job titles. Don't think about the trustees or the staff or the donor or the chief executive or the marketing or whatever. Think about human beings in roles, because if you think of everybody as a human being, you will find that you're it's easier to tell them because you're just speaking to other human beings. And then Again, with everything, whether you're leading your organization, having a difficult conversation with a direct report, talking to your trustees or talking to the wider world, appeal to the heart. You know, people appeal to the heart and then back it up with data. So tell the story and then demonstrate how the data, you know, so it's not, it's not to just discard data or to say that numbers and facts and figures don't count, but actually what really does matter is the story you're telling. And again, if you think about the pandemic, all those lists of those cases shooting up through the roof, 
generally don't hit home until you've got someone or you know someone who has had COVID or suffered from COVID or died from COVID. You know, it's like the story is what drives the action, not the numbers, but just make sure you've got the numbers to back it up. That's amazing. Well, look, thank you so much. I feel like I could chat to you for, you know, several more hours, but we are coming. I bet you say that to all the podcasters. <laughs> we are coming to the end of our time now. But, but before we go, just tell us a little bit about or tell people listening how they can get involved, how can they connect with your organisation, what what can people do to help? Well, obviously we're on Twitter and, you know, our website. So um, our website is www.dsc.org.uk, dead easy. And all the information about what we do is on there. And also you can get all of our Twitter um, handles and things like that. We, we have at DSC underscore charity is our Twitter handle. And obviously they can follow me at Deb Alcock Tyler. Um, but really, honestly, we want to help. That's what we're there for, you know, so don't ever be afraid to come and ask us and we will see what we can do to serve. You know, it's like, that's what we literally exist to help charities to do their best, to do their best, to help the people that they need to help. So yeah, just don't be afraid to come and ask yeah, us. Yeah, if you're, if you're listening to this, I would, yeah, I would absolutely recommend go on to dsc.org.uk check out this you know literally if you're running a, a charity or a not-for-profit organization and you've got a problem there's a pretty decent chance that there is if not there's a I mean, there'll be a course on there there's also a huge amount of free materials and things like that a huge amount of guides and advice on there that you can go to so i, I would i would really would recommend checking that out in detail because there's, there's a huge amount of great resource there well Thanks. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I hope we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks, James. Well, that's it for episode two of the Charity Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. That conversation was really great. I really enjoyed talking to Deborah. Uh, and I think she gave so much great advice. I hope you got a huge amount from it because uh, yeah, I know I'd learned loads and I took loads of stuff away uh, from our conversation. Please, please check out the Director of Social Change, as well as some of Deborah's articles, including It's Murder in Management, It's a Battle in the Boardroom, and the No Fibbing Guide to Leadership. These are some really, really great articles that we've put all the links in the show notes. And if you're listening to this before the 10th of November, the Director of Social Change has got an online conference all about influencing policy and politicians, which I'm sure will be really, really useful to a lot of people listening. All the links, as I said, are in the show notes, so please check them out. Next week, I'll be chatting to Barry Fletcher. He's the chief exec for Career Connect, and it was actually working with Barry at Career Connect that gave us the inspiration to do this show in the first place. So I'm really, really looking forward to sharing our conversation next week. So head on over to 33percent.co.uk, hit the Charity Leaders podcast button at the top of the page, and you can sign up to our newsletter to get notified every time a new episode drops. But they're going to come out every single Monday uh, for the next few weeks. Whilst you're there, you can also learn a little bit more about what we do to help charities with their marketing and their strategy, ultimately helping them to help more people around the world. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.